This is this is 88.7 WHCL-FM from Clinton, New York, and this is Finding Dodo. I'm your host, Miyano Sumi, and today's topic is a continuation of the last episode, which was Victoria Woodhill, and she just had so much going on in her life that I decided to make it a two-parter. Um, so we left off with Victoria marrying Colonel James Harvey Blood her second but not her last husband so quickly to recap victoria woodhill um and what she's famous for i guess because that's why like she's known as a historical figure um she was the first woman to run for president um so yeah that's actually the part that we're going to go into today but yeah victoria so quickly to recap victoria woodhill grew up very poor um but she was sort of recognized as a smart and ambitious one in her family it was a pretty big family i think and they were like very, very poor, and they were born in Homer, Ohio, so really in um, a rural area. And her father exploited her and her sister, Tennessee, to run a family traveling show that sold miracle cures to people. So her father was like a con man. <laughs> At 14 years old, Victoria married 28-year-old, um, what was his first name? But anyways, his last name was Woodhill, and that's how she got the surname Woodhill but divorced after 12 years and two children due to his alcoholic womanizing and overall abusive habits. And he actually comes in again, which is really crazy, um, into her the second half of her life. This probably was this experience with him. Um, and again, like just marrying anyone at 14 years old, and I go into this in the first episode, but like she might have been kidnapped by him. She might have been... Um, followed him because she wanted to leave her abusive family like it's not really clear what um, like led to their marriage when she was literally half his age but um, this experience was probably what influenced her free love movement which advocated against marriage and the ability for more specifically for women to not be bound by the bondages of marriage in the 19th century which were especially sexist because I think actually my professor was even talking about this like even until the 70s um, there was just a spur of a lot of divorces um, and that was really because women were in unhappy marriages it's not like marriage suddenly um, became worse it's like women as women are liberated they are more able to divorce when they want to and so when people say like oh divorce rates are so high that's such a bad thing like is it necessarily a bad thing like very few people I think find the quote-unquote true love and many people just put up with unhappy marriages so is it better to stay like it's not like people are gonna be happier necessarily in a lifelong marriage they might actually be happier like divorcing is also a way to reach happiness especially especially so especially back then when it was hard for women to divorce um yeah so yeah so she marries colonel blood in 1866 i'm not actually quite sure it wasn't clear how they met um but she's 28 years old at this point so she's a little older and in 1868 she and her sister tennessee moved to new york city together and so before this they were kind of going around the midwest and just like selling themselves as healing clairvoyance so they were kind of con artists too i guess um but yeah if you want to go in and see a more like in-depth nuanced perspective on that i would recommend listening to the last episode but um 
Yeah, where they met Cornelius Vanderbilt in New York City, who is one of the richest Americans in U.S. history. And that is the same Vanderbilt. You might have heard the name Vanderbilt that started Vanderbilt College, or I think it's Vanderbilt University, actually, um, and who also built the Vanderbilt Mansion, which I actually visited when I was in high school, and it's so beautiful and so over the top. Like, they have a, I remember they had, like, a Louis Fourteenth room, and it was just all gold, and it's like, wow like rich people just you get to a point when you have so much money where you just don't know what to do with it um so the sisters meet him i don't know how they met him i think he was actually oh yeah i remember kind of like he was into spiritualism at that point and they were meeting with him i guess to like sell their spiritual healing powers um but then yeah they he ended up really taking after him and there is some rumors that he was actually interested in marrying the sister, so Victoria's sister, Tennessee, um, and so they meet him, and they make enough of an impression on him that he ends up financing their them to start a brokerage firm on Wall Street, and it's it was called Woodhill Claflin and Company. So I guess I guess she kept the abusive ex-husband's name, but um, yeah, so they were actually the first female stockbrokers in America and the media coverage was like they were people were very scandalized but they were also really intrigued and they would publish sexualized pictures of the sisters like running through the stock like the stock brokerage firm um they were called the queens of finance and the bewitching brokers so there was a lot of very like genderized media attention on them um and susan b anthony who actually comes in later too was supportive and and said like it's good that there's women in wall street um and apparently they were good brokers too and they advised their clients well and they made a lot of money like they made a lot a lot of money apparently there was even one episode where um she um she meaning victoria advised vanderbilt to invest in this certain thing and then it made him a bunch of money um so like it's kind of luck but i mean judging from their upbringing they were pretty sh- like they they had to grow up street smart i think and i think they were pretty shrewd so they used the money they earned they had a lot of money at this point to open up a newspaper uh woodhill and claflin's weekly in which they addressed women's issues and general reform issues it was founded in 1870 and was one of the first um uh, newspapers to actually be founded by women too so they were talking about things that were quite radical for their time so it's kind of this interesting contrast between they're making money at this very like white man centric establishment industry but they're also so socially radical and so they were writing about how there is um they were running writing to promote a single moral standard for men and women so like not expecting women holding them to a higher moral standard they were asked they were writing about legalized prostitution which is still actually illegal in every state in America except Nevada, which I think you can kind of guess why. I guess it's because the um, like Las Vegas <laughs> and everything. And they were also advocating for dress reform. Um, and I don't know much about legalizing prostitution, but I have heard about it in the context of feminism as a way for what is predominantly, obviously, a female workforce to join the formalized sector and thus get more protection. And I know it's especially become an issue with the Me Too movement with um like people are very sympathetic towards the quote-unquote perfect victim but when sex workers get um sexually assaulted and stuff there's a lot less 
like sympathy and legal protection for them um which is wrong obviously like every victim every unconsensual um interaction is assault um and i guess if yeah so like i think legalizing prostitution is very interesting like i guess if a person wants to sell their body that's their choice i just can't imagine how that would ever be a consenting process like like to just sell your body to a random stranger i don't know but if it is consensual and by consensual i also mean that they aren't poor like i think everyone should have job opportunities and some sort of social welfare network um net to fall back on and then if they like if they have access to good government aid and then they still choose to do prostitution if that's like actually a thing that some people want to do then i think it should be legalized but i don't know i just can't imagine that ever being consensual like with a stranger i don't know but like that's just my perspective and i feel like people have very different perspectives than me so yeah so they had their newspaper and much of it was actually written by a guy named stephen pearl andrews who was an abolitionist and advocate of free love as well he advocated for communal responsibility of property and children as well um and so this new newspaper was pretty notorious it was also the first so it had like very kind of communist tendencies it was also actually the first newspaper to publish an english translation of karl marx's and friedrich engels's communist manifesto um and he actually comes into the story later too but because at the time most activists were not even going for like women's activists were not going even for political equality they were just asking for suffrage one part of that and so then you have woodhill here who's like campaigning for free love and like social equality and and all these other things that are feminist issues but they're like issues that in 2019 we still haven't grappled with so she was very radical for her time obviously um and that's a that's a theme throughout this whole her whole life like she's just a very radical or like very honest person i guess like she just follows her beliefs to the logical conclusion and like doesn't really wait for society to catch up i guess um and then there's also some things that are very like opinions that are still i would consider weird that we'll go into at the end but um the paper covered what were considered taboo topics like short skirts and i don't think they meant mini skirts i think they meant like anything that showed an ankle um and they it was um a proponent of sex education birth control labor issues and vegetarianism which i thought was really interesting um and free love and some sources were saying like oh they talked about feminism and and women's suffrage and they talked about these other like weird radical concepts but i think these concepts actually are feminism so like sex education and birth control allow the woman greater autonomy over her own body um, because if a couple conceives a baby it's the woman that typically takes on the brunt of the responsibility so i think definitely sex education and birth control are helpful to a woman um, and dress coding women is usually another way that women are subjugated to unrealistic social standards and um, most of the arguments I remember like just dress codes in high school the arguments against women or girls dressing the way they want is to not distract the boys and I remember like in my high school we would people would even get dress coded for having like a spaghetti strap like if a guy is being distracted by a woman's shoulder or ankle it's not the women's problem like um and then also free love which i think was her most controversial concept um was formed after she had a bad marriage and it was 
and was forced to stay in it through legal and social constraints. So I think, oh, oh, and also actually like even vegetarianism, I was thinking about this, like how this would tie into feminism. And I have read some literature connecting those two as well, like both relate. Um, I think there's actually a really good book on this by Carl J. Adams that I haven't read yet. Um, it's called like, like vegetarianism and feminism, something like that. Um, but that book talks about how both um, sexism and speciesism or like eating animals both relate to the commodification of bodies of those belonging to marginalized groups so like women and non-human animals and um, this is not vegetarianism this is veganism but like egg the egg and dairy industry both rely on the exploitation of female reproductive systems like obviously of other animals but um, like I actually personally quit my dairy consumption when I found out that dairy cows are artificially inseminated throughout their entire lives to produce milk, like they don't just produce milk, they produce milk because they're impregnated and the industry is not gonna wait for them to just like get pregnant naturally. So all milk is made from like artificially forced inseminated cows. And the industry, at least like the factory farms in the industry call this the rape rack. And when I heard that, I was like, so, I mean, I was just in high school and I, just cut out dairy because of hearing that like it was just so out of line with my values of like my feminist values so yeah going back to victoria woodhill though so regarding her socialism or communism it's obviously very interesting because she had gotten her fortune on wall street i don't know how you can get more capitalist than that but she was also someone that seemed to somehow thrive wherever she was and so like I just kind of imagine her like stumbling around New York after traveling as a magic healer and then banking was just sort of the industry that she fell into. I don't know. She just like seems to be good at things that she takes up. Um, like she's clearly very charismatic and very good at speaking um, and very smart. But yeah, actually she so she actually joined the International Workings Men Association, but the organization quickly declined um, and I think she might have even been kicked out of it. I'm not sure. Um, and I said before that her newspaper was the first one to print the Communist Manifesto, but actually Karl Marx commented on Victoria Woodhill and he talked about her saying she was, quote, a banker's woman, free lover, and general humbug. So he did not have a high opinion of her, which, I don't know, <laughs> you can be the judge of that, like, but I think it's kind of cool that they interacted. And it's like she printed your stuff, so... I don't know, I guess he's the kind of person that, like, he's Karl Marx, like, I guess he doesn't really care about making enemies or hurting someone's feelings either. But anyways, so also besides her newspaper, she was doing other women's activism and connecting with other suffragists. So Victoria had actually been invited into the, I think it was like the National Women's Suffrage Association by Susan B. Anthony. And they were hesitant to let her in because her newspaper was so radical, it was more radical than they were. And she, but she emerged as an obvious leader after she was able to infiltrate male-dominated politics and testify for women's suffrage before the House of Representatives. So this was a really big step and I, this is like a story of its own, so I'm going to go into this a little bit. So she had spent several months like going around DC and she had access to sort of higher circles because she was from Wall Street and she was like this really dynamic wealthy influential woman and she was like going around talking to different people and she was able to finally convince Benjamin Butler a high-ranking Republican and again back then this is still when 
the Republicans were like the more progressive party. Um, and he was a high-ranking Republican on the Judiciary Committee to allow her to testify. So on January 11, 1871, Victoria became the first woman to address not only a House committee, but she was the first woman to ever testify before Congress, which is pretty cool. So, um, yeah, so the establishment suffragists, they actually had a convention going on, but they postponed it to go in, to go with her. And it's like they had worked on this issue for so long and they had never achieved what she had just achieved by just going around her social circles in a sense and just being really persuasive um and when she was and when she went to testify she actually went with um she was flanked by susan b anthony and isabel beecher hooker who would be a lifelong friend and she was able to win over when she testified she was able to win over one other representative named william lowridge but the initiative in general was tabled um and everyone was like most people everyone else on the committee was like no (laughs) so that this catapulted her to the center of women's rights groups it brought suffrage to the national discussion and popularized the constitutional argument for it so she actually argued for it on the basis of the 14th and 15th amendments which were like they were they were to be inclusive of black people obviously after the civil war but she was saying that they could be applied to women also and that like it they said that everyone in the u.s who is a citizen had equal rights um so yeah that that was her argument and she soon became quite powerful within those uh suffragist circles due to her captivating speaking skills and apparently like she got so popular that there was some tension between her and other suffragists who disagreed with her tactics because like she really was just like outspoken (laughs) and um like susan b anthony had some disagreements with her apparently and her faction of the women's rights movement eventually broke off and became their own more radical faction so this is the faction that became the equal rights party and this is where her sort of presidential run comes in so in a letter to the editor in the new york herald Victoria Woodhill announces her candidacy for the 1872 presidential election as a nominee of the Equal Rights Party, um, and this was in 1870, I think. Oh, was it in 1870? So then her testifying was after that then, I guess. Um, Yeah, because she campaigned for two years, I'm pretty sure. Somewhere around that time. But yeah, she was 32 years old, and in the election should be 34 so she was actually this is really funny because like not only was she a woman right which is obviously like the biggest controversy that you could possibly like have maybe not the i mean i guess being a, a black president but like women at that point were in some ways politically behind black of uh, the black population as well because they didn't even have the right to vote um obviously there's so many political barriers still to black people i mean even today but back then too but um it was just like so controversial that she was a woman but not only that she was not even like a constitutionally eligible candidate based on her age like she was a year younger than you have to be 35 when you're sworn in to be a real candidate and i guess like <laughs> she was just so cool like the equal rights party was like you know what you're not even the right age i mean obviously like it wasn't like they planned i mean unless you're very optimistic it wasn't like they were planning on they were more running to make a point i think and so yeah like they just chose her because 
might as well might as well choose like this very interesting dynamic person um and this was so she was running a half century before women even had the right to vote and i don't even know how many years before we've had our first actual first woman president because we've never had one yet um so yeah she was like way ahead of her time yeah that's so weird in a sense like the first woman to run for president was in 1872 and here we are 150 years later around 150 years later and we just like still haven't had our first woman president i don't know maybe 2020 um although i yeah yeah i'm not gonna actually i'm not gonna go into that because that's a long conversation but um she chose frederick Douglass as her running mate and vp but she didn't ask him first and when he was asked like he was actually um a voter for the electoral college i think at that point and they asked him and he was like no i didn't sign up for that i was never told that um and people kind of use this against her like oh she was just so crazy but like he actually thought like they they actually met later on in rome which is kind of a random place to me but they met later in 1887 and apparently they had a really pleasant encounter and they had a good talk so there was like no bad blood between them at least in the long run and her run obviously had some difficulties so her ex-husband the abusive one the the one named woodhill he actually came back and started living with her and her current husband I'm not even sure like if he was leeching off of her or I I just don't know the details of this but it fueled a lot of controversy because her morals were already on shaky grounds in the public's eyes because like she was advocating for free love and like the abolition of marriage and all this kind of stuff and things that people sort of I would say unjustly associate with moral moralism or like being moral and so this just made her look even worse and she got so sick of this how women were always held to a higher moral standard how people were saying she was an influence on the good christian nation of america so okay this is actually one of my favorite episodes in her life so she exposed a guy who was maybe the most famous clergyman in america at the time his name was henry ward beecher um i actually think i remember learning about him in school as like the what is it called the revival i think he was part of that movement um and he was actually having an affair with his friend's wife so he had denounced free love he actually supported women's suffrage but he had denounced free love and he had publicly denounced her and was saying like she was sacrilegious and stuff and yet here he was carrying on with a secret affair so she actually found out because the wife um elizabeth tilton and he was also married like the white the woman he was with was married he was married he was also a clergyman um and she found out because the woman that he was cheating on with elizabeth tilton told her husband theodore who then told elizabeth katie stanton who then told victoria so isabel beecher hooker who you might remember i talked about her going with victoria when she testified before congress was actually his sister as was the famous harriet beecher stowe who wrote uncle tom's cabin she was also in the beecher family so this is like a very powerful like liberal i'm not sure how to describe them like abolitionist sort of activist oriented family um and she sided with victoria like she isabel sided with victoria and harriet sided with henry and it really just divided the family not only divided the family but it was a huge media 
fiasco. Um, and so Victorious exposed him or wrote about him in November of 1872. And in her newspaper, it's not really about exposing him, I would say, so much, but rather it was about the double standard between men and women with regard to private relationships. Men, I think this is still a thing today. Like, um, I don't know, the first example I can think of is like in K pop, for example, because I like I used to I still listen to some but I was like really into k-pop in high school and whenever a scandal would come out um it was all, always like the the woman the or the girl that was really criticized for dating and the guy would not be criticized as much um and I think like when you have like I've seen this even I think like it's kind of t- typical also like when the guy cheats on his girlfriend with another girl the girlfriend gets mad at the girl instead of getting mad at the guy which I can kind of understand because like you don't want to think of someone you care about that way but it's like I think it also is kind of a double standard like women are still held to a higher moral standard in a sense um but yeah anyway so um yeah not only uh, yeah, not only was he exonerated though, like, so back then it was illegal to be cheating. I don't think it's illegal today. I think, like, we're not living in such a sort of nanny state, but um, it wasn't even a good trial because they couldn't come to a decision, so they had his congregation hold a hearing, and they obviously exonerated him. But the funny thing is, is actually Victoria was arrested. Like, she wrote, she just wrote about him, and she was arrested for writing about him, basically. So she and her, her sister and her husband <laughs> were arrested a few days before the election, and the charge that was pressed against them was that she passed, quote-unquote, obscene content through the federal postal system, which you weren't allowed to do at that time, which is like, that's not your business what I put what I put in my letters you know what I mean um and they were only acquitted after seven months of litigation and she spent a whole month in jail so she was actually in jail the night of the election um our yeah our first female candidate was in jail the night of her election but because of their acquittal and they were actually acquitted on a technicality but because of that acquittal Congress actually passed a whole law to strengthen the laws against obscene materials in the mail. So um, I think it was called, uh, it started with the, the Cornell laws or, yeah, it started with the C, but anyways, they like passed a law to, I guess, catch the next person that tried to pass obscene materials through the mail. But the whole affair received huge amounts of attention, maybe the most of any previous scandal, partly because newspapers were starting to become so widespread and hundreds of thousands of Americans watched this unfold and it was just, I guess it is kind of, it is a pretty juicy bit of drama. So um, an interesting note, after the trial, Beecher would later endorse the conservative Democratic candidate Grover Cleveland, Cleveland, saying he should be forgiven for fathering an illegitimate child. And I'm not sure like why you need to endorse someone for president if you're just like forgiving them for something but um yeah i guess he changed his high and mighty opinions on some things or maybe that's just another example of the moral double double standard like gover cleveland a guy can do this but not um not victoria woodhill and the thing is like she by free love she goes back and forth it's kind of confusing because like she just wrote a lot in her lifetime but 
it's kind of confusing because um, but what it seems mostly is that it wasn't about being polyamorous it was about being monogamous but you can enter and exit relationships whenever you want um, so it's not really it's like more about just having a fully consensual and not a binding or restrictive relationship it wasn't about just like having a different partner all the time um yeah so as you might have guessed uh victoria did not win the presidency she didn't get any electoral votes and after the election she and her sister went to england actually um and victoria also divorced her second husband and apparently the trip was financed by the Vanderbilt heirs because I mentioned Cornelius Vanderbilt before and the importance he had in their start in New York and he had actually died and the um, the heirs didn't want the like Victoria and Tennessee to be in the country because they might challenge the will um, and so she continued so they moved to England and she continued to go to periodically to America and she tried to run again in 1884 and 1892 but she wasn't successful um, and she lived mostly the rest of her life in England and so and like I guess she traveled because she was in Rome when she met Frederick Douglass so I guess she was traveling around too and in England she continued to give speeches um, and that's actually where a wealthy British she was giving speeches and a wealthy British banker named John Biddulph Martin uh, met her at one of her her gigs and unsurprisingly his family was uh, they, they meet and he likes her and, and they start dating um, but unsurprisingly his family was strongly opposed to the marriage I mean honestly if I was a parent <laughs> I just like I'm not even sure Victoria Woodhill is just like such a wild card but um, they actually eventually he, he eventually marries her in 1832 and his family eventually comes around too um, I guess because she's just that persuasive and she's that charming but she becomes victoria woodhill martin victoria and her sister traveled among the upper the upper social circles of, of england and they became famous for their philanthropy she also started publishing a magazine with her daughter and this comes out of nowhere but she starts advocating for eugenics um yeah i don't i looked into this and it seems like there is a differentiation between her eugenics and what we commonly think of eugenics like nazis and coercive eugenics and like pseudoscience her eugenics was like weirdly anarchist and sort of connected more to abortion rights like if a woman doesn't want the child she should just like abort the baby um and like also sort of we should have better practices like you shouldn't you should be like taking care of your like taking care of your body when you're pregnant so you don't have like um uh like a mentally or socially um ill child I guess is what she was saying but there's some controversy on what her position was I honestly don't quite know what to make of this because eugenics is like just so tied up with racism and like anti-semitism obviously and so many problematic things and i really couldn't find much on what her eugenics thing was but it seems like she did move away from this after a while um and so after her husband died she moved to the country to Breddon's norton in worcestershire and she actually began began advocating for educational reform there and she sponsored a village school and women's clubs and 
she became a leading champion for kindergarten education in England, um, <laughs> which is so wholesome. Um, yeah, and she died there on June 9th, 1927, at the old age of 88 years old. So that was her life and times. Um, and yeah, the whole time as I was researching her, I was like, is she a hero? Is she just, what is she? Um, she is so fascinating. She was obviously very persuasive, very charismatic. She spoke her mind and she wasn't sort of swayed by the people around her. Um, like she had her, she went her own way. Uh, she was so ahead of her time on so many things, even things that would be ahead of her time today, like legalizing prostitution or vegetarianism or, um, or, or even having a woman as a president. <laughs> that still seems ahead of 2019. But, um, yeah, she was just like, imagine how much has changed in the last 150 years and the fact that she like she honestly is a person of the future I feel like but I guess I mean you have to have those people in every time period or else nothing ever progresses but um what I also what also struck me was like she wasn't strategic like the other suffragists were saying like let's just focus on suffrage like should we be doing a three-fourths state ratification to get a constitutional amendment or should we get like congressional legislation or like how can we do this strategically and like should we apply pressure on the president or on congress people like that's the stuff that i'm usually reading when i read about suffragists but she was just like i'm gonna i i just made a million dollars on wall street i have my own newspaper and i'm just gonna say what i want in it and i feel like there's definitely an argument against that like you should be more strategic if you really want to accomplish a goal um so she wasn't like a grassroots organizer or like a policy writer or anything like that um but she also had this really shrewd side of her as well like she just seems to survive and thrive in whatever she's doing and just like find her way around i guess um yeah so like when i was researching her i went through a cut like i went through i would say four stages like the first one I didn't know her I just knew that she was the first woman to run for president and I was like wow she's so brave she's a heroic early feminist and that's so cool and then I learned that she was like a con artist like medical clairvoyant when she was growing up and I was like that is weird that's crazy and then I was like wait that actually kind of makes sense because her dad raised her that way and it was like more his fault for exploiting her and like free love actually makes sense in certain contexts but then like I heard about and then you read stuff like oh she was a eugenicist and stuff like that and I just don't know what to make of her like it was and there were just so many funny stories about her like it wasn't just her life like oh she went to school and did this it was like the story about her like writing about the most famous clergyman and exposing him for his um affair with someone else or how she like went around and was able to be the first person to testify before congress um so just like a lot of different things and um yeah the whole time i was just like is she i think the question i always had with her was like is she a crackpot or is she a visionary like i just don't know um and yeah it seems like free love took up a lot of her attention and that was the most controversial thing about her and that really sort of like i said she wasn't strategic like if she had just focused on one thing i think she would have been more effective i guess in a way but she just like 
said everything that she was passionate about and she was passionate about so many different things like I mean education reform just kind of came out of nowhere for me at the end too um and certainly eugenics did um but yeah she did so much and she's such an important figure in history she was obviously the first woman to run for president but she was the first woman to testify before congress to start a wall street firm and one of the first women to start women to start a newspaper she interacted with so many important historical figures like Karl marx frederick Douglass, and the beecher family um and especially considering her background too like the rags to riches she was so poor um grew up in the middle like somewhere in homer ohio i don't even um i like i'm it's not a it's not a metropolitan area um and it's just crazy to see where life took her or i guess it's more fitting to say maybe where she took life because she definitely forged her own path um so yeah that was victoria woodhill martin that was i guess the name she she died as um yeah and i, I was just thinking like one way i would describe like learning about her is like there's the common question of like if you could invite three people to dinner like from history or from anywhere in the world and just like talk to them basically who would you want to talk to um and I think she would definitely be one of those people like I'd be very curious to talk to her and kind of like understand understand her because she's really confusing and and really interesting um yeah and so next week's topic is going to be not a person not a movement not an event it's actually going to be a game it's going to be the history of a game and it's going to be the history of monopoly um because i actually came across this recently and it, it was actually started as a criticism of capitalism and it's actually really interesting so like i i came across this because i think it might have been a couple years ago but monopoly the company they um came out with a socialism game like it's like monopoly but it's just like called socialism instead and it's like the same thing but it is such a weird criticism of socialism like the chance cards and all those kinds of stuff like they the game just portrays socialism in a really really unfairly negative light excessively negative light and a lot of academics were criticizing the game like this is not really accurate and doesn't make any sense um and not only that but it's like really ironic because actually monopoly was used supposed to be used as a metaphor for like a criticism of capitalism and then ironically um it was actually so it was um started it was it was created by a woman and then she sells it off and then this like company of two men i think that like they are the parker brothers make a bunch of money off of it which is like typical capitalism um and then the moral of the game is kind of lost so it has a really interesting history that um i want to learn more about the woman that like invented the game too because if we're going to talk about forgotten women in history like that's definitely an important one so yeah um and then i'm thanks for listening and tune in next week